I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. And I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week on the show, we have Tad DeLay, uh, a professor of uh, philosophy and a really amazing author who wrote a book called Against, uh, a great kind of psychoanalytic reading of white evangelicalism. The subtitle is What Do White Evangelicals Want? Um, he's written a couple of other books as well that he'll mention shortly. I encourage you to pick those up. Uh, but this week we're talking about that book in particular, especially coming off of our episode last week when we talked about Mike Pence and how weird he is and how weird it is to think of him as a Christian. But you got to do it. You got to be weird. And uh, I think this week uh, helps us think a little bit harder about what's at stake in that conversation. Yeah, for sure. And as a uh, well, I'm still white and there's no escaping that. But um, as a former evangelical, uh, I feel extremely seen by this book. It is something that will definitely, if you uh, have an evangelical background, you'll you'll read it and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I get this. I get this hard. <laughs> it, it's cool. It's cool and upsetting in all the ways that you want a book to be cool and upsetting. So let's get right to this cool and upsetting content <laughs> with Dad. <laughs> So this week on the Magnificast, we have Tad DeLay, author of the new cool book Against, which is coming out, um, I guess, later this month on Cascade Books. So uh, make sure you keep an eye out uh, for it. But anyways, Tad, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you want to say just a few a few things about who you are and what your deal is? Uh, it's great to be on the show. I'm a longtime fan. My name is Tad DeLay. I am on the affiliate faculty of several philosophy departments, teaching philosophy and religious studies at, at colleges here in Denver. Um, and I am the author of God is Unconscious and The Cynic and the Fool, and then most recently, yes, in the next few weeks, against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Uh, my research interests are in psychoanalysis, specifically Lacanian theory, uh, critical theory, uh, ecological collapse, and uh, philosophy and religious studies more broadly. So that's what I do. I'm, I'm very interested in um, uh, the, you know what the what the best of 20th century thought has to say, and then the latest scientific research in, in you know in climate change and so on has to. I'm very interested in how those things kind of resonate with this intensely xenophobic religion that I grew up in, uh, and, and now kind of study as part of my other project. So that's that's what I do, and I'm I'm happy to be here and talk about it. 
Cool. Thanks a lot. Well, um, whenever we uh, ask an author onto the show, uh, we always try to get them to give us like an elevator pitch for their book. And uh, that can be pretty difficult because you just wrote a big book about it. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can imagine this elevator ride extremely long all the way up to the top floor. Um, but yeah, what's uh, how would you pitch the book um, that you just wrote? Yeah, in a minute or so, it's it's sort of a history and psychoanalysis of white evangelicalism. And, and I'm taking that specifically as a religious and political coalition that emerges uh, in response to after Brown versus Board of Education, after the, the end of Jim Crow. Um, I, I'm looking at this, this specific conservative uh, religious political coalition kind of built around whiteness, and I'm wagering that it's, it's kind of like a new sect. It's, it's definitely not a new religion. It's not not Christianity, but it kind of functions as a type of sect that is a theological improvisation around whiteness, right? So, so my, my wager is that whiteness is kind of undergirding all of its sort of internecine uh, you know, debates over things like evolution or hell or inerrancy or whatever else it's, it's worried about. Um, and ultimately, it's about power and brutality. Um, uh, I guess I should say the, the five chapters, it's called Against because the five chapters are against future on climate change denial and uh, apocalypticism, uh, against knowledge, which is on, uh, you know, the Brown versus Board of Education and the emergence of the private school and the home school, against sexuality, probably no ed uh, explanation needed there, against reality is on propaganda and Fox News and persecution complexes, and then against society, which is uh, fascism, theories of populism, that type of material. Um, and I, I guess kind of to close, I, I just recently actually, just a month or two ago, well after I finished this book, uh, finally read that old uh, book, What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas Frank. And I actually kind of felt like he was doing something with conservatism that I'm kind of interested in doing with white evangelicalism, except whereas he's kind of uh, interested in just how, how do you get conservatives to think of class not as uh, where the, the modes of production are, are held in, in terms of power or, or money. Um, instead of class being the workers and the owners, uh, class becomes refigured as a type of mood or a felt feeling. Um, and so Thomas Frank is very interested in, in thinking about how conservatives are duped into voting against their financial interest. And I, I think that I am more interested in something that's more, I think, visceral and gloomy. And I, I'm very much more interested in how do you get conservatives to vote against their access to health care? How do you get them to vote to kill themselves? How do you get them to masochistically, physically harm themselves and sadistically vote to um, kill off their own grandchildren by destroying breathable air? So th that, that kind of sadism and masochism is what I'm interested in. Yeah, it's a bit longer than an elevator ride, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Some elevators are really long. Uh, and it's it gets a lot of themes on the table. We'll be able to come back at uh, to many of them, and um, I think it's a good a good way in. So we'll have have more time to p uh, pick it apart. Um, just maybe to start, actually, we, I want to come back to why you want to talk about whiteness in particular at the bottom of evangelicalism. Lots of time to get into that, but before we do, I think it's also important to, if you're comfortable anyway, ask you a bit more about your own personal experience in evangelicalism. Uh, how that makes up the backdrop of this book, uh, what it means for you to have learned all these tools and psychoanalysis and, and other discourses and kind of turn them toward a, a, a way of being in a community that, you know, shaped your own uh, sort of entrance into the world or something like that. Um, so yeah, could you, as far as you feel comfortable anyway, say a little bit about your own um, background and how this all fits together? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I uh, the the book kind of comes out of a, a number of different impulses, and one is just like after the 2016 election, I felt like I I got an explosion of questions, like you know, people asking like you know, I just don't get how people can not believe in climate change or want to tear down society or or with Pence, like how how can people torture their children with conversion therapy, those types of questions. Um, and then as I started to do more speaking events, I started realizing that I, I, a lot of post-evangelicals would kind of ask the same questions over and over. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of it being boring. I mean that, that there's something like actually kind of familiar and, and beneficial about realizing how common these patterns are. And I wanted to kind of give a language to it because people would often ask, do you have a book that explores this and this and this? And, and I would kind of often be in the position of, well, I have a book that can explore this and then something that does this other topic, but maybe not everything kind of together in the way that I, I want to argue it. Um, but yeah, but the final reason is that um, I felt like I still had a lot of questions that I needed to explore even after having written two other books, um, the questions that were kind of more deeply personal and kind of fit into my background. So I grew up as a as a white evangelical, I, I grew up going to a Southern Baptist church, and then in middle school, my family started going to uh, a, just a kind of vanilla mega church in the area. I ended up working on staff at that, and then worked at uh, various other churches as a as a volunteer member. Um, and I, you know, I had a lot of questions about my background. So, like, my my family was very um, um, poor, working class, and and we went scholarshiped to a private uh, Protestant school. And I always kind of knew that that Protestant school system had something to do with the reaction in Arkansas, which, where I'm growing up, with, as a reaction to the integration of schools. I knew that there was some relation, but I didn't know that, like, for instance, the South alone had 450 laws in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education that they passed postponing or, you know, in some way limiting integration of schools. Um, and I, I knew that private schools began at that point, but I didn't know that they soared 120% all, like, almost overnight, right? So, so I knew that there were some, I knew some things about my background as a part of my religious studies and just research on my own, but I really wanted to, I had a kind of a list of questions that were kind of lingering, these questions about future and knowledge and sexuality and reality and society. And I said, so I mean, that's, that's kind of why I wanted to explore that. And um, I think there's a... I think that there is a there's a sense among a lot of people who are who grew up evangelical or post evangelical there's a, there's a sense that evangelicals aren't doing Christianity good enough or that it can in some sense be reformed and I and I really wanted to push against that because um, I have seen just the 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 levels of just uh, uh, crass cruelty that I that I I just I, I mean I don't even really have it put in the book but um, but I mean just the the level of crass cruelty that I feel like I've seen up close kind of tells me something about the the potential for reforming this thing. Um, I grew up with a lot of friends that that thought it was really really fun to. Um, kill people in the military, right? Um, or, you know, when I worked at a church, uh, I was uh, fired at one point when my um, uh, 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 inherited uh, heterosexism started switching. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I realized I couldn't um, uh, say that being gay was a sin anymore. So I, I lost my job at, at, at that point. And then the, the pastor that fired me um, went to prison shortly after that for having sex with children. And, and so I, in like, so this is my background. I got to watch a congregation defend that behavior um, and and continue to criticize me because it, I think there's a sense in white evangelicalism that actually to have any sort of progressive belief is 
is more of a direct assault on on God's word or whatever than than the most cruel sins that one could commit against against uh, the other human beings against children. Um, so so that's my background. Yeah, is is very deeply steeped in that. And at some point, I kind of. Um, moderated my Christianity and then eventually left it all together somewhere during seminary and have been very interested in the potential for religion ever since. But I, I do want to say that this uh, this white evangelical does not moderate. It's unsavable. It is the most dangerous faith in the world because of its standing with the Republican Party and capital interest. And we need to be real about that. And so that, that's the type of thing that I'm exploring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, dang. <laughs> Well, and I'm happy to go. I, I have no qualms about talking about any of that. So any any questions about that is is totally on the table. That's fine with me. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, well, I don't know. That sounds a lot like my own experience in white, white evangelicalism. Um, and I'm sure it's probably not too far off from Dean's as well. But um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the white part, the, the ways that white supremacy plays into evangelicalism um, and uh, how, you know, those anxieties are tied up with the the religious. So um, the book is, you know, against what white evangelicals want. So um, can you kind of just like tell us what's up with that part? Like the what's the racial aspect? Yeah, well, I really wanted to frame it as a as a novel iteration or a sort of a more recent sect that um, again kind of begins in Brown versus Board of Education and Civil Rights, and then sort of it comes to fruition for, as its first test run as a political coalition, probably with the Goldwater campaign. Um, I had this intuition while reading Darren Dochuk's work from Bible Belt to Sun Belt because he, he has a really really great exploration of early 20th century evangelicalism, which I'm, I'm saying is. Kind kind of like a precursor, not quite the same as what you get in like the 80s and the 90s, but it's, it's definitely a precursor. Um, and kind of out of reading his work, I got this intuition that what we're talking about today is kind of more like a distinct sect of Christianity that's kind of built around whiteness. Um, and then later I, I read... Um, Sort of, I think after basically after I had come to that realization, I also saw other scholars. Uh, you know, Adam Kotzko, for example, I believe has made a similar case that there's um, at, le at least some novelty to what this faith is and how it's working. Um, so I don't think that I'm at all original in saying this, but. Um, I, I do think that we're talking about a, a separate thing, and the, the, the whiteness itself is, if we go back to the, the 40s, maybe is, is one way to, to think about this, but by the 40s, especially in Southern California, among um, post-fundamentalist, early, early evangelical leaders, um, Charles Fuller, uh, Billy Graham, like all, these figures are starting to conflate unions, blackness, communism, uh, uh, sex education, all of these things are sort of getting, starting to get wrapped into these propositions that they're passing. And they're talking across lines with uh, figures in the Bible Belt. And, and they're, they're these, these sparks that are resonating across constituencies. And you start to see the rise of the megachurch and, uh, you know, with like Amy Simple McPherson. And she's working on a proposition to uh, abolish uh, the teaching of education in schools. And they're having that fight. Uh, in like the same time span of, of like, uh, you know, one way to think about it is the Scopes Monkey Trial happens like within two years of the height of lynching. So there, there were these, all these proxy fights and talking about being anti-union and the un-Americanness of the communist movement is a way to cover over the anti-blackness that's kind of underwriting that. So that's true at least by the 40s, right? Like there's, there's starting to be this very clear, distinct trend of thinking of the Americanness and the, the capitalist-ness of 
of Christianity as a way to cover over blackness. And it sort of works the same way that um, the abortion issue is mobilized. This is Randall Balmer. I don't know if we want to go into all of this, but Randall Balmer's kind of made a very convincing case in a number of his books that abortion was actually um, a, a topic that was kind of generated uh, by the by the right as a way to cover over the loss of segregation as a mobilizing passion, right? So, so um, I, I guess I kept finding that all of these different topics I want to explore, yeah, you, you'd think there'd be nothing, um, uh, you know, overtly racist about um, evolution, but then obviously, like immediately, like you can't. Uh, scratch under the surface without finding all sorts of, of anti-blackness and race thinking uh, immediately. And you find that with all of these topics. And so that's that's precisely why I wanted to explore that. And and I think we get this um, in its in its perfected form today of Trumpism, which is kind of like, a, I think, of a, as a perfected form of white evangelicalism. Um, it, it's definitely a perfected form of the Goldwater or Nixonian era. Um, but Trumpism is is explicitly out in the open anti-black, right? Like it's, it, it would, it would, it's loud laughs at the cruelty of its anti-blackness and its, and its um, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee status. And so um, that, that's the way generally that I see the, the whiteness underrating all of this. Yeah, I think it's really helpful the way you pull that apart in your book too. Um, I mean, there's a lot of convincing evidence anyway to <laughs> figure out why that's an important way to understand evangelicalism as it understands itself, um, even if it's not on the surface. Uh, well, Maybe this is a good time, too, to ask you to talk a little bit more about evangelicalism as an identity. It's a really difficult thing for people to point at something and say that's evangelical or a person and say that's evangelical. Um, you talk about this a bit in the beginning of your book, right? Like, uh, you can go to a poll and X amount of people will say that they're evangelical, but more people might say, for example, that they're born again or use some kind of evangelical language to describe themselves. Um, so maybe we could talk about that uh, a bit. And um, then we, we have a couple of questions here about how you have kind of a unique take, I guess. So maybe just that first, like, why is it complicated to talk about evangelicalism? And then uh, secondly, we'll try to sort of push things in a direction to ask you how, um, how you specifically sort of see that identity getting constructed. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, number of problems. Uh, any time we're talking about how to categorize a particular sect, that's facing the same problems that periodizing um, when a religious movement begins and ends faces, right? So, so at some point we're drawing kind of arbitrary dis uh, distinctions, but I think those distinctions are necessary and we have to risk um, setting ourselves up for failure by by doing that. But I think it's it's fairly obvious that the, the majority of white evangelicals, for example, are very supportive of Trump, right? So, so it's, it's a fairly easy case to make that it's that's a conservative movement for lots of reasons but for every 81% that that supports Trump uh, that means that 19% did not right so so it's not a monolithic thing but it is overwhelmingly one thing or the other um, problems that we run into in 2006 23% of the population of America was white evangelical uh, uh, by 2017 it was 17% and I think the last report from last year this is after I was able to draft my book but I think the latest number is 15%. Part of that has to do with changing demographics in America. Part of it, I think, has to do with increased embarrassment about using that term. So when I call someone a white evangelical, I'm essentially leaving it up to self-reports. 
But we do find that the number of people who are born again is much higher. Uh, the number of, of people who describe themselves as born again in America has dropped from something like low 40s to high 30s in the last 20 years. Right, So it's dropped a little bit, but it's, it's not plummeting the way that white evangelicalism is. And so my wager is actually that a lot more people than will take the term anymore probably are inflected with white evangelical beliefs in the same way that once the rapture gets created, you know, uh, almost 200 years ago, it's very popular for people who did not grow up in, uh, you know, Plymouth Brethren, uh, Darbyite dispensationalism to believe in the rapture, right? So, so one of the problems that we face is that people, you kind of have to rely on self-identity, People are not self-identifying anymore because the religion has embarrassed itself into the ground. A lot more people are are born again, and then even beyond that, we have inflection of white evangelical sentiments and theological ideas that would extend presumably even beyond those confines. And all of that makes it feel really difficult to do something like uh, uh, Bebbington does by with his, with his quadrilateral by saying like evangelicals are defined by like activism and crucifixism and biblicism and. Uh, uh, conversionism, right? Um, th those just to me aren't that helpful because that, in a, in a strictly academic sense, I can see why you would need a definition like that, but it doesn't reflect what's actually happening. Um, if you ask in white evangelicalism, uh, a white evangelical, um, whether or not they are smarter or better than somebody else, that's probably a more important doctrinal point as a kind of a uniqueness of God than whether or not they believe that the Bible is without error or something like that that's traditionally ascribed to them. Um, does that does that get what it, what you're um, uh, trying to explore there with that question? Yeah, I think that makes sense. That's a that's a good way to start. the The next really interesting piece, though, of you know what's an evangelical or or how does that actually play out is um, this psychoanalytic piece um, that I think is pretty surprising, but I, but works out in a cool way. So, um, man, s some of my some of my academic work is about uh, conspiracy theory, and maybe that's why I was so interested in this. You know, um, if there are any conspiracy theorists in the United States, they are definitely evangelicals, um, doomsday preppers, and so on, right? Um, and and I guess my assumption, you know, was before I read your book that like uh, people who um, you know, Christian conspiracy theories are about like finding some kind of comfort in a chaotic world, but you actually turn it on its head. And I think in this really interesting way, describe that um, evangelical identity is not about finding comfort or finding like a, a God in control of everything, but but finding ways to like form their identity around the idea of turmoil um, and like chaos. And like, that's actually the, the really important piece of it. So yeah, um, so that's what you end up saying that there's this really um, kind of perverse idea like idea behind evangelicalism in the way that it needs the turmoil to kind of thrive. So could you could you tell us about how that works and how evangelicalism uh, like you know thrives off that uh, turmoil and that chaos? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question, and I I, I have all of this kind of front loaded right into the introduction, and then I try to keep psychoanalytic language fairly minimal throughout that, which is a significant departure from the rest of my work, but of of course, the Lacanian theory is underwriting everything that I do. Um, one reason that I think religion needs to use psychoanalytic theory is because if we're talking about beliefs, like good Protestants, um, then uh, what people believe and what people can, well, let's say what people do and what they can espouse have a significant gap between them, right? And then secondly, psychoanalysis assumes that if somebody is acting, they are enjoying, right? So. Um, if somebody is uh, in some sort of destructive or addictive pattern, 
you don't ask them whether or not they want to get out of the pattern, right? That, I mean, that's, that's, that has no bearing on whether or not they, they desire to do something different, right? What they desire is what they do. So my wager here is kind of taken from Lacan's 10th seminar where he describes anxiety and turmoil as states that actually people prefer a lot. So, and I know that that sounds counterintuitive, but um, think about how if you, anyone listening to this has had like the experience probably of like telling a religious person that they're not actually being persecuted and they have all the power and they just don't realize it and they just want to feel like a victim. Um, when you tell people that, they don't get excited and think, oh, that's so great. That's so liberating. I have power. No, like they, they want to see themselves as, as persecuted, right? As kind of a tertiary justification for the type of sadism they want to inflict on others, yes, but it's not just sadistic. It, there is also this masochistic element of enjoying turmoil. Um, sometimes we have fights and we want to feel sad, right? Um, so, and, and this is a this is a particular religion that, that builds around that. Um, one way that this stands out to me is when uh, Calvinists uh, will tell me, like, you know, I'm I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'll you know I go on and on about like how sinful they are. Um, what they're doing there is is not contrition, right? They're boasting, and they are boasting specifically because if they think of themselves as a sinner condemned by God and just like barely uh, saved by the grace of God. Um, they get to think of themselves as a sinner and like to, to some extent thinking of yourself as a scumbag uh, makes you happy. And, and, and so it's kind of, it's this, it's this entire faith that's built around feeling bad about yourself. Um, my God, did you, are you part of the 99% of people that have sex before marriage? You should feel bad about yourself. Um, are, are you not doing as well as this other person? It's because you're persecuted, right? You know, so it's, it's kind of built around anxiety. And I think um, one more thing that I think is very important in the way that I'm thinking of this. Um, anxiety or turmoil uh, can lead to acting out, right? It, it's a reactionary formation. It's, it's not like um, people don't feel turmoil and then break from it very often. That happens, but, it, but it's rare. Usually people start acting out as, as, a, as a way to kind of keep turmoil going, keep it generated. Um, and my wager is that if you think of anxiety or turmoil as kind of a middle register between shame on the one hand and indifference on the other. Uh, the, the weird thing about shame and indifference is they, they can manifest the same. If I'm ashamed of something, I feel too seen by the world. It, it is the worst thing imaginable. I want to shut down. I hope that no one notices that I even exist, right? I just want to retreat. So I don't say anything. I don't jump to defend myself. I just retreat, right? If I feel indifference about something, I don't even think to defend it, right? Like I just kind of go about my day and change topics to something else, right? So shame and indifference can not internally, but externally, manifest as the same thing, um, but they are worlds apart internally. And so if um, a white evangelical, for example, should probably feel shame for, uh, you know, they should feel shame for putting kids in concentration camps or destroying the world for future generations. Like th that's something that, that one probably should feel a little bit of shame. Not just that you're doing this, but that your whole life is kind of organized around the destruction of others. That's worth feeling shame about, but they'd like to feel indifferent. And 
if you have to choose between the two, kind of getting halfway into anxiety and turmoil and trying to convince yourself that you're always being attacked, that's a good middle register. So that, that's that's kind of how I'm taking this angle psychoanalytically throughout the text is that, that element of a differentiation between the conscious and the unconscious evocation um, and also the relationship of anxiety and turmoil to shame and indifference. Uh, I think that's a really, really helpful. That's probably the most helpful thing I found um, in your whole book, uh, just because it opens up so many ways of reflecting on evangelicalism and evangelicals that I know and, you know, the brief time that I was involved in evangelicalism myself. Uh, it just sort of rings true. Um, I wonder, though, like, could we talk a bit about the political side of this, too? Because, um, you know, what is the sort of Trump presidency, if not a, a complete production of, of turmoil? Like, it's contingent on, uh, you, you know, the, the production, reproduction of all this stuff. Um, so maybe to connect it with something we've been talking about on the podcast, uh, last week we were talking about Mike Pence um, and trying to sort out, you know, what does it mean to say that Mike Pence is a Christian? Or like you mentioned earlier, there's this kind of trope of being like, well, um, extremely violent or reactionary Christians aren't true Christians. Um, but that kind of trope can land you in other kinds of theoretical problems too. Um, so people like Pence, you know, they do some, some really bad things and liberal Christians in particular usually get mad and say he's not really a Christian. Um, but because your book shows that there's a conservative Christianity based in this kind of turmoil, uh, it seems like it, it's important to, first of all, recognize that that's the case, right? That this is a, a unique kind of Christianity, and, and we need to understand it as a historical force or something. Um, but secondly, there's almost a, in the kind of liberal reaction to Trumpism and, and Pence and the evangelical right, there's another kind of like turmoil that gets produced too in like the resistance rhetoric, it seems to me. Um, so I'm wondering maybe if you could just talk a bit more about uh, your insights about turmoil, but connected to this weird political moment. Yeah, well, I, th I think turmoil, if it, if it acts out instead of having this passage la act, uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's two different, if, instead of like actually converting and doing something about your situation, if you're just kind of acting out to kind of keep turmoil in place, um, that's that's what hashtag resistance usually is, right? Uh, there's there, uh -huh. there are cases where there's probably legitimate political activity going on under that banner, but generally it's rage mongering, and that's acting out, right? Like that's that's looking at a situation in the face and thinking that you can reason with your opponent, and your opponent can't be reasoned with. They need to be defeated in this case, right? Um, so somebody like Mike Pence is is I think kind of interesting just because uh, he's a very pathetic creature, right? I mean he's probably the only person in the world that is not as miserable as Donald Trump, but he has built his career around like Christian supremacy and is known for uh, things like gay conversion therapy camps and and things like this, right? Like so he's he's known for doing absolutely nothing good ever. He's gotten a lot of people killed and and tortured even more. Um, and there's there's absolutely nothing redeeming about this figure. And precisely because of that, he is a true Christian, right? I mean, I, I think of white evangelicalism really as the the Christian faith in America, right? Like it's the most Americanized, capitalized faith that you could possibly come up with. Um, there's there's absolutely nothing non-Christian about it. It's supersessionist to the core. It's supremacist to the core, right? It, it has all of these factors that are the worst impulses of Christianity. So why would you not call someone like Mike Pence like an avatar for true Christianity in America? Absolutely. Um, you, you had like another question there, another insight that I wanted to hit, but I, I lost my train of thought on that particular part. Uh, do you remember what the, what the other aspect of that was? 
Um, I mean, I think you hit the two main things, you know, like, why is it important to understand Pence as a Christian specifically based in this kind of turmoil you've identified? And then secondly, that, uh, yeah, how it relates to the sort of liberal reaction as well. Um, but I think you got it. Well, I think, and one more thing that I think somebody like Pence gives, and, and Trump does this too, is it kind of it gives a, like another reason for boomers to be isolated from their millennial or Gen Z uh, kids or grandkids or whoever, right? The, there's, um, I, I think that actually grandparents today. Um, Probably are have so much anger towards their kids, which is is a self is a, is kind of like a, a return of the repressed that I think comes from kind of suspecting that your commitments lied in vain and you've kind of been duped your whole life into supporting this conservative project that's destroying the world. That's a hard thing. That's a threatening thing to realize, you know. Um, and then your faith is on the decline, and you kind of suspect that all of that was for naught too. And so when you when you're facing like death in a couple of decades or whatever. Um, uh, looking at somebody like Pence and kind of seeing how your kids or grandkids are kind of like worked up in, in angst all the time about how awful this administration is, it's kind of funny to you, right? If, if you're kind of coming at things from not wanting to feel ashamed of your commitments, it's hilarious that your kids won't call you anymore because you're supporting Pence and Trump and they think that's disgusting, right? The, there's a sense in which like creating more, more turmoil, even like like day to day in the family can be something that, I mean, I think it sounds counterintuitive, but I think everybody knows a number of people that are exactly like this, right? Um, yeah, so the, the generation of turmoil is, is, is it's funny, and it lets you justify violence, and it lets you destroy your, your world and be miserable. Well, there's a lot of really scary things kind of bound up in that, <laughs> like, uh, at, like legitimately terrifying. Um, but I guess one of the legitimately terrifying things to me is something you said just a few minutes ago, too, that like... Um, you know, these folks aren't people who can be persuaded. They're people that have to be defeated. And I think that is, um, it's scary because we have this like kind of weird view of the world. Well, it's weird now after I read your book. Uh, we have this view of the world where we think that arguments work like, you know, someone presents a, an argument for something. They persuade a, a second person and they're won over. But instead in your book, what we see is less, um, less, you know, um, Rather than political arguments being important, uh, desire becomes more important, right? In the one of the chapters of your book on climate change, you set up this framework that pits like enlightened liberals who know about science against like duped conservatives, and and only if the those dang conservatives would would understand the facts would they actually believe them. But that doesn't seem to be the case, right? It doesn't seem like there are any facts they're willing to believe because. Uh, D desire here is primary, not logic. And and to me, I guess that why I say it's scary because that means that yeah, I mean, defeat really is the only option. It brings um it brings like the type of violence that could be um, involved in that type of defeat, you know, way to to be way more likely. And I I don't really like that. So um, maybe you could tell us more like about what's going on here about um this you know political argumentation, but like versus desire or something. Well, yeah, I, I think that the I mean, this kind of gets this classic question of how do you line up Freudianism and Marxism, right? Because yeah. on on the one hand. Um, it, it's clear that a lot of what you're doing is, is a backlash against uh, 30, 40 years of, of failed policy and the destruction of jobs and the collapse of possibilities and all of that. And that makes sense to me. And then the Freudian aspect says that actually there is such a thing as desire that's not uh, perfectly indexed to um, other cultural or economic factors. And part of that desire is a death drive, right? Um, both a, a drive to destroy the self and to destroy the other, but at any rate to repeat the familiar territory. Which 
with very slight modulations, such that you can find novel ways to destroy yourself. So, so that that's kind of a contradiction, right? And, and I want to acknowledge that. Like, I I don't still know if I know how quite to line up my view of Freudianism and Marxism. It was this is a classic question, right? But they they fit together to me, but not perfectly. So I I do kind of oscillate between the two of them, and I think it's that's probably a bit unfair and inconsistent. But nevertheless, there we go. Um, but yeah, but I mean, this is a an insight that Lacan, uh, you know, was writing about in the 70s. But like this idea that you think you can uh, convince the duped to be smarter um, is is, a, is always a trap, and it makes you the biggest idiot. And and the version of this that we see all the time is precisely when. Uh, you know, liberal Christians try to proof text a verse at conservatives as if they give a damn about what the Bible. <laughs> like, I mean, like, like how how little do you understand evangelicalism if you think they actually care about the Bible, right? So, so they don't, you know, that that's fine with it. They'll get rid of that in a heartbeat. And um, another thing in um, my second book was called the the cynic and the fool, and it's, it comes from a motif of Lacan's called the the knave and the fool from one of his seminars. And I actually finished the rough draft of that book one day before Trump announced his president. And I'm, I'm very glad that I was done principally with the writing because I, my interpretations would have been all completely wrong. I, I would not have thought that somebody could possibly be that stupid. Um, so I just kind of assumed he was playing a manipulative game. Um, but Lacan kind of says, you know, this is this is the, the classic distinction is that the left, or especially liberals, um, will um, play this part of a fool where they pretend to not know what's going on and pretend they can reason with their opponents, even though they know that they can't, right? Um, and then, I mean, like as we're recording this, Mueller is giving testimony to Congress, right? And there really are lots of liberals who think that like with enough facts, uh, Republicans will change their mind, right? And Lacan says, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that the the, the, the conservative is, is much more refreshing because when you ask a conservative, do you actually believe anything you just said? They just admit straight up, don't insult my intelligence. I, I'm not that stupid. Like, of course I don't. I'm doing what I'm paid to do, right? Like, so like, get real, right? So there's this much more kind of crass, open uh, vanity and nihilism on the right that, the, that I think just confuses and disorients liberals and to extent that they can't interpret those actions and so they think that they can um, uh, you know, reason and calculate and plan in a way that just doesn't work. I think David Roth recently put it like really excellent when <laughs> he said, you know, liberals think that that Trump and the Republican Party are playing chess. Uh, you know, they, even though they see daily evidence of how stupid all of this is, they still think that there might be some plan this time. So liberals think that Trump is playing chess, and in Trump, uh, the, the man is playing hungry, hungry hippo. Right? <laughs> there's there's no sort of logic here, and so we I think we need to be real about that, and um and, and kind of reject the logic that we can reason with our opponents. Yeah, I I mean, okay, this is kind of out of left field, and if this is a dead end in the conversation, it can just be a dead end, and we'll we'll delete it later. But um, so my background is in media studies, rhetoric, and um, for some terrible reason, uh, I've had to teach public relations at my school of a handful of times over the last few years. And um, there's like this actually really strong resonance between psychoanalysis and public relations. Um, the sort of the the guy who's, you know, really just responsible for uh, doing lots of public relations stuff early on is this dude named Edward Bernays, who is the nephew of uh, Freud. So there's like this weird interchange between some of the stuff he's doing um, post-World War II with uh, marketing and public relations and um, Freud's thoughts about society and the death drive and stuff. Anyways, so when you're when you're saying all of that, I keep thinking about Edward Bernays and his weird answer to all of this. 
and how there's like, it's not, I mean, he's not a Marxist for sure. He's like a liberal who's out to make a lot of money, but basically he's just like, well, if you want the, if you want the public to do something, you have to, um, kind of like activate their desire to do so and to make it seem like, you know, it doesn't need to be logical. It needs just to kind of feed into the, the, their desires of everyday life about, you know, how to get them to smoke more or whatever. And I guess like the, the rub for me with all of this seems like it has a very low view of like, uh, not necessarily democracy, but just like what people are, just the way people think, I guess. I don't know. So on the one hand, I find this uh, account pretty convincing, like, you know, that uh, liberals aren't, they need to stop thinking that they can like win conservatives over or something. But on the other hand, it makes me feel like um, this paints a picture of conservatives or just liberals and liberals too, as being like, you know, not smart enough to think through these things. So I, I don't really know what that gives us, but that's the least attention I feel when it comes to, um, you know, uh, trying to figure out politics and psychoanalysis is that, um, you know, Marxism is about like, how do you win people over? And how do you propagandize to them to make them make sure they join your cause and understand, you know, like what you're after. And psychoanalysis is like, well, they're never going to get they're never going to understand it. So like, I don't know what you do. Well, okay. So I, th I think that's, that's such an excellent way to put it. And I appreciate that critique. Uh, yeah, this is like sending me back to, I, I did my undergrad in uh, psychology. So like all of the, the studies that we did about the advertising in, in early psychological work and stuff like that, it's, it's sending me back. But um, yeah, so I, so, so I don't want to be an absolutist about this. And this is kind of like where I uh, kind of freely admit to kind of oscillating between my, my Marxism and my Freudianism and don't have a complete system worked out for, for how this precisely works, right? Um, but um, here's what I want to say. Uh, I, I am pretty adamant about the idea that we are subjects who desire, not subjects who desire to know. And, and I think that that distinction is probably an important one that has kind of become something that undergirds all of my work. We are not subjects who desire to know. We are subjects who desire full stop. And only occasionally does that desire attach to a desire for knowledge. And it does, right? It, it does attach to a desire for knowledge. And sometimes people educate themselves out of certain perspectives, right? More often, people have a crisis that requires, that creates the certain mental conditions by which they can transition into a different way of thinking of something, right? Like usually it happens through crisis, but it can be something that people think themselves out of slowly. So both happen. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think that this is pedagogically very helpful because I use this concept in the classroom where I'm constantly reminding my students like it's it, it's it's a rare thing to desire to know something and that is a precious thing and that is that is something that must be fostered and tended to carefully the desire to know because it's not a natural thing and I cannot force you to know or force you to to rethink certain perspectives, right? And I'm teaching philosophy. I'm teaching intro philosophy and ethics, right? If my students have a complete change of heart, it's not because I convinced them to change their heart. It's because I, at most, inspired a bit of desire for knowledge, right? I inspired them to think a little bit more about something on their own, and then they did 99.9% .9 of the work, right? And so, so that's, that's the way I think about pedagogy, and that's also kind of how I theoretically think of things. But in as much as you're kind of pointing out that this is a 
a very gloomy view of human nature. Yeah, I, I do. I, I feel like very gloomy after writing this book. I'm, I'm trying to think about like what I can do next because it does feel like a very gloomy view of human nature. It feels very pessimistic. Um, but I think that is precisely why we need good Marxian thought and good Freudian thought. We, we need to kind of accept that this is the condition we're working with. Um, there's only so much we can do with these particular modes of production that we're kind of uh, encircled by all the time. Things are getting worse, not just in terms of capital, but in terms of climate. Um, and once the minimum 200 million refugees um, are, are fleeing uninhabitable countries due to climate change in our lifetime, um, that's going to produce another reaction of, of hyper-conservatism and xenophobia. And, and those things are predictable, right? We can, we can predict human nature and, and how um, modes of relation, uh, how, how relations and, and production work such that we can kind of, uh, of see that pattern coming. So um, I, d I don't know how much more I have to say on that or if I'm, I feel like I'm no, rabbit trailing good. a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a pessimistic thing and I, I think it's a realist thing to talk about that, that pessimism. No, I think that's really helpful. Um, yeah, I, I guess I didn't mean it as like a criticism. It's just like, man, really makes you think. And uh, you sure have made me think. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I think of it as a criticism of my work. I mean, that's that it's certainly like the, the possibility for political change feels like something that that I personally feel underdeveloped on. Um, so I, I think it's it's worth acknowledging that. Um, I think that this might be a good place to invite you, I guess, Tad, anyway, to even though you have some underdeveloped thoughts about politics, maybe just kind of like shoot off the cuff a bit. So, um, you know, so much of this book is uh, grounded in psychoanalysis and certain Marxian theories, too. Um, and we found that really, really helpful. Uh, at one point, like you refer to William Connolly's phrase, uh, the evangelical capitalist resonance machine, um, which is a really good uh, name for your, your next punk band. Um, so uh, how do you think that this kind of Marxist vision uh, or Marxist way of understanding human beings and desire and all of that as well uh, fit into your analysis and maybe more to the point, like, how do you think that, say, uh, a communist goal of, of abolishing capitalist society and changing the mode of production that makes people, you know, behave in, in certain ways too, um, how would that also connect to the fight against you know, white evangelicalism or something? Is is there a, a, a direct link, for example, between um, uh, capitalist ways of, of being in the world and evangelical ways of being in the world? You know, they're, they're not necessarily epiphenomenal uh, toward one another. Um, so I guess just, yeah, inviting you to say a little bit more about that connection and also how the resistance that might be connected to. Yeah, so I, so Connolly's concept of an evangelical capitalist resonance machine, it's built on Deleuze as much as anyone, um, but his, his claim is that capital and Christianity in America uh, share certain uh, affinities. He calls it cowboy capitalism. Like it, it's almost like the way that uh, uh, people who want to apologize for capitalism will call it corporatism or something like that. So, so I don't know that we're completely on the same page by what we mean about capitalism. But he talks about how capitalism and Christianity share certain affinities, not goals, but affinities. Right. So capitalism. Uh, denies the future figuratively and that it doesn't really have any incentive to think more than a quarter or two ahead on the financial uh, reports. And then evangelicalism denies the future in a more literal sense, right? Um, capitalism needs to think of itself as having available supplies of exploitable labor. Evangelicalism uh, is 
ultra racist and perfectly willing to go along with having an underclass of exploitable labor. And, you know, so, so I mean, they're, they're both patriarchal, they're both authoritarian, they both want control. Uh, they, they have a number of affinities that can resonate together, right? So his, his idea is not that they share goals, but they share enough affinities to resonate together and to augment. Where I think that's helpful is he's trying to get around this sort of um, I don't think this is really a fair criticism of Marx, but, but the way that some people crudely want to criticize Marx is to reduce him to saying that religion is only a, you know, a symptom of capital, and that's all it is, right? Um, so he's, I think he's trying to get away from that and say that um, we can actually think of religion and capital as augmenting each other, or, or really one is, one, is, one is the master in this situation, and it's, it's clearly capital. Um, but that evangelicalism provides a type of ideological space that can augment the worst impulses of people in support of capital, right? So, so it's not that capitalism is necessarily supporting it, it's that when you have a group of people who are told to submit, told to know their place, told to feel anxiety, told to work harder, that augments the power of capital, right? And so, um, on the other hand, if, if we were to get rid of capital, my intuition is that um, uh, first off, evangelicalism has already uh, ended, if, if where you get to the end of capital, uh, but um, let's say let's if, if it perhaps hasn't. Um, evangelicalism and capitalism, at least the way that I'm talking about this specific type of evangelicalism, uh, one of the most important things is is uh, is the racism under involved, right? And it's not clear to me that that race could possibly work the same way in a post-capitalist society, right? Like ca capitalism is kind of um, the the reason that we need to have racism, right? Like, I mean, it's the institution of, like, colonialism and mercantilism and then capitalism um, that uh, creates this uh, space where, um, uh, you know, slavers recognize a potential to take advantage of and abuse other people, and then out of that you get the racism, and you get the race science, and you get the explanations, right? And then those use religious supports all along the way. Um, um, sort of in the same way that Mark Knoll, you know, kind of argues that uh, biblical inerrancy is is a support structure for slavery, right? It, it comes out of the need to justify slavery. So I guess my thinking is that if you remove a system in which people um, uh, are uh, necessarily dependent on owners and just barely scraping by and just generally miserable with their lives, um, and if you remove a system that is uh, prioritizing the exploitation of certain people, uh, and namely people of color, then th all of those reasons that are sort of also undergirding white evangelicalism disappear. And so there, it seems to me that there would not be the incentive to have white evangelicalism. Um, and this is sort of, I think, it works a little bit different for Wilhelm Reich, but when he, he makes his argument in Mass Psychology of Fascism that basically you have uh, the church competing against the communist for uh, the, the youth, and uh, you know the church is over here saying you can have liberty and no sex, and the communists are saying you can have uh, liberty and sex, right? And, and once you kind of um, remove the conditions, his kind of his explanation is that um, one of those is more appealing naturally, but once you kind of remove the, the conditions driving people to inhibit themselves in the first place, then, then the choice becomes more clear, or at least more natural, more open, less constrained. Um, does, does that get uh, close enough to, to what you're asking, or do you want to redirect me on, on something here?
No, no, I think that's good. It, it just suggests there's lots of avenues to kind of keep poking at it, which is great. Yeah, well, I, I don't think that um, Connolly is probably not as, as much of a, a proper Marxist as as you would be, or I, I don't even know that he's as much of a Marxist as I am. Um, but uh, yeah, so there, there's definitely gaps. But I, I find it to be an intuitively helpful concept to think that um, we can we can share affinities even if we're not sharing goals uh, and and the left can do that too right that that's the basis for for broad movements all the time um, and so uh, but it, but it does kind of get to this classic question that we can even see with like on the left like the the international uh, the first international right has this question of, of how much to what degree can we work with other groups that we share affinities for as working men but not necessarily same ultimate goals um well, we are getting t- kind of to the top of the hour here, so maybe we should uh, find a way to rhyme this out. Um, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff going on, though, so um, there's a lot more questions I could definitely ask. Um, but I, I think maybe the one that would be uh, most instructive at this point is, you know, you, you have this book that is um, laying out all the problems with the evangelicalism and all the problems with, you know, the ways white supremacy is caught up in it and that evangelical capitalist residence machine. Um, so what would you say, you know, to an evangelical who might hear this podcast or maybe just a regular Christian who's less evangelical or, you know, someone who's been sincerely messed up by it. (laughs) Um, what, what would you want to tell them about your book and like, you know, um, maybe how they should continue to comport themselves in the world after hearing this? Well, I'd say, I'd, you know, um, buy the book or uh, if you don't want to pay money, I do, I'm going to have a, a one-off podcast series on it that I'll give, be giving away for free just to kind of get this out there to as many people as possible. Um, uh, partly inspired by you talking about podcasts all the time, Matt, actually. Uh, but more seriously, I would say, I would say um, get out as soon as possible and uh, know that you will, uh, you will lose your friends and that's okay. And it's okay on the other side. And um, I, I think my transition out of evangelicalism was, easier than most even though I was uh, like I, I was an evangelical of the evangelicals right like I followed all the rules um, I, I, I was I was really deep into it and so it was hard to leave in a sense but I left by going off to seminary and finding that basically everyone else had a very similar story and everyone else was working themselves out of all these ideas at the same time together and so it was very helpful to me to have that kind of space and if I didn't I don't know quite what I would have done it would have been a lot more threatening it would have been uh, it would have been it would have been hard you know, if I had not had a different group of friends in a far away different state, moving out to Los Angeles, right? Mm. Um, so I, it's it's a it's a hard space, but um, look, I, at the end of the day, if you were raised around evangelicals, you, you know that that a, a massive amount of deception underwrites everything going on in that world. Um, you know that um, when I'm talking about how sadism and masochism's object is not to produce harm, but to produce anxiety, to poke at you and to make you feel bad or make you feel like you don't know what's coming next, you completely know that um, in uh, if, you, if you were raised as an evangelical, right? Like that, that's, that's abuse kind of square one. Um, reject that, right? You, you don't need to listen to that. These are, these are adults who know that they are lying. Um, I don't know anybody who was really a com- super committed evangelical all the way through who remained so as an adult, right? They, everyone who remains compromised. And this is another thing that uh, Lacan kind of bears out. But um, loyalties to the big other are sustained through um, an infinite number of disloyalties, right? So, so it's the, the hypocrisy is, is not something that you criticize. It's, it's part of the goal for the evangelical, right? Like it produces lots of pleasure. It, it's an effective pleasure mechanism. Um, so don't be worried about um, 
rejecting what you grew up with. Um, leave as soon as possible. Understand that they don't buy it either. And uh, you can, uh, if you have the desire to know, um, that's a precious thing. Cultivate that. Uh, read more. Think more. And and uh, you, have, you have nothing to fear by rethinking concepts that you were raised with. Uh, could I actually, can I ask you just one final question here, Tad? Just because we have a few minutes and I, I think this might be, uh, well, I'm curious about it. So I'm just selfishly imposing my own desire here. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, what you were just saying at the end, I think is so helpful and so meaningful to a lot of people who have a hard time, you know, really naming their experience, especially naming as abuse uh, when it is. Um, and I'm thinking about that with what you've been saying about cultivating a desire to know and how that that's crucial to, to exiting in a way that's healthy. Um, and I guess I just want to know, you know, for people who, who did grow up in evangelicalism and still are connected to that world one way or another, maybe voluntarily, maybe involuntarily, right? Like their whole family is evangelical and they're the only one that's not or something. Um, you know, how do you navigate those spaces still, especially without a kind of profound sense of resentment um, that can eat you alive as well? Um, that's just something I see, I guess, in certain evangelical communities and, and people that I know, friends that I have. Um, and it's really difficult to like figure that out. So I guess maybe we could sort of end on that note too, like how... Um, how can people interact with that in a way that, you know, doesn't sort of immolate yourself uh, also from the inside? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a big problem, I think. And I, I felt that anger for a long time until, I, I, I mean, honestly, like the, the anger at how I was raised really subsided as my connections to that world subsided. So it's not something that I would say I just got over. It's that I kind of let certain connections go, even familial connections, um, that I'll just never get back, right? And so um, people kind of have to decide if, if, if that is, is worth the cost. I, I think it is. Um, one thing that makes me think of is, is for all of like the students, stupid things that Plato says, especially about pedagogy. I think one thing that he, he says about pedagogy that I really like is that he says basically teaching is like just doing your best to not turn people's head away from the light. Um, and it, there's a real there's a real sense in which to to learn sometimes your body has to be oriented. I mean, like physically, like sometimes you have to move to a different city or get out of a space. Um, but white evangelicalism or any type of controlling ideological um, uh, space that you, if you grow up in it, you, basically your entire life your head has been turned away from the light, right? And the moment that you're try, trying to look at the light, someone tries to turn your head back away from the light, um, and and that's a that's a difficult thing to recognize and. Um, it has it has really been hard for me to I will say come to the realization that there are certain relationships that I just won't be able to have like with a with a grandparent or so on uh, for example um, just because uh, my very existence is an affront right all of my commitments all of my works um, is is an affront to everything that he holds dear and so we just can't have that relationship because he can't get over it and and that's 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 up to them sometimes and and that's gonna happen and I will say like I mean on the ex-evangelical thing, I don't know what comes of that. Uh, I, I feel that I would have been attracted to that if I had not gotten out sooner and if I had not been in a graduate situation where I knew lots and lots of people who had processed all of these same questions. Um, I'm very leery of criticizing anybody's um, process of figuring themselves out. Um, but uh, know that if people are reactionary, 
there's a, there's there's an impulse that that's going to make that unhealthy in the long term, right? So so certain things, certain conversations, um, I, I see a lot of people finding a lot of life. I think in the evangelical world, um, I would say, and I think even many of the prominent voices in that world would say, if you're still in that space in in five years, that's a problem. Uh, to, like recognize that reactionariness is is always a toxic uh, situation, and the point is to is to kind of get beyond that right reactionary space. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, glad to have you on the show. And let us know when you get that podcast up. We'll direct our listeners to it as well. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I, I hope the book will be out uh, maybe by the time you launch this. Uh, I, I, sometime in the next couple weeks, and then the, the podcast will be up uh, the day that it goes live, just so that people can kind of get a taste for what I'm talking about. Um, I don't do audiobooks, so it's, it's kind of my version of doing an audiobook. And uh, uh, if people don't have uh, money to buy a book or time to read a book, then my hope is that I can still at least get um, this material out people's hands for free um yeah but thanks for having me on um again i appreciate the work you guys do i think it's it's super important and I, i'm glad you're occupying this space thanks thanks <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also find a separate podcast we do there called The Damnificast about the TV show Damnation. Uh, it's a really wild show about uh, a Marxist pastor and some strikes in Iowa, all kinds of neat things going on there. Um, we've also got a reading group going on right now uh, for a couple more um, sessions anyway. It is about Jose Maria Miranda's book, communism in the bible so you can get in on that uh, at patreon as well um let's see what else do we have going on i think that's pretty much it uh our music in the podcast is by amoria armstrong and the outro is the illogical spoon see you next week i don't want to get up at church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.